Hey everyone, Gene Ginsberg here. Welcome to another episode of the podcast and very excited that we have a very special guest today, Justin Beals. How are you? I'm doing great. It's good to join the podcast today, Gene. Thanks yes. for having me on. Yeah. Yes, we're we're very glad that you're here and getting this up and running. And I like to kind of go through just a bit of background for our audiences and maybe so you can share a little about, you know, where you've come from and then we can talk about where you are now. <laughs> sure. Uh, so um, I think I kicked off my interest in technology startups on the technology part at a really young age. I was really interested in computers. Uh, when I was a kid, I couldn't really afford a hard drive. And so to play a video game, I had to copy the code out of a magazine and put it in the computer programmatically. And I just got intrigued by how they worked. And you probably would have called me a computer hobbyist all the way through grade school and college. Um, I actually studied uh, theater uh, for college. Uh, I'm not a traditional computer science grad, which is probably the right mix for me of um, tech entrepreneur. <laughs> so uh, and actually, after I after I finished uh, my bachelor's degree, um, I worked in uh, professional theater and film for just a short couple of years before I got a job in the tech industry, and I really never looked back. Um, I was always deeply interested in starting a company, mostly because of the culture ramifications. Um, I was looking for a very creative space and something exciting to work on and I think uh, groundbreaking uh, innovations. And it's just not um, necessarily something you find at the old tech companies and building new tech companies was something you could do. And so I I got started on it. I, I probably started uh, failing at my first couple of companies around 25. Um, the first one that took off was I had a services business. Um, we had uh, We offered software development solutions in enterprise education technology. And I built it out of my living room. I didn't have any capital and no one was going to give me theirs. And so uh, we just started on our own. We got kicked out of the living room when I had three engineers. You know, my family was like, no, you can't bring them here anymore. And uh, by, let's see, I founded the company in 2000. And by 2009, we were doing about 9 million in revenue a year. And we had 130 consultants globally. And I found a buyer for the business. It was just really outgrowing my ability to shepherd it anymore. Uh, after that, I have been mostly working on the product and technology side. I can be a CTO founder or a VP of product. And uh, I've done that for quite some time. My last couple of gigs were as a chief technology officer. And it was while being a CTO at some venture capital-backed startups that I found the problem that I wanted to solve with StrikeCraft. And I was also emotionally ready to be a CEO again. And so ready to dive back into the deep end of the pool. Yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, lots to unpack there. Uh, but definitely one thing that that struck me was, uh, you know, the failures, right? That's everybody, I think I can relate to that. I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast as an entrepreneur can absolutely relate to that, right? Everybody thinks that like, oh, I'm going to start my company and the first company is going to be this wild, huge, you know, a, a, amazing success. And and I remember I I had at least three companies fail before my before I started my digital marketing agency, which you know has been around for ten years now. But you know, I think part of it for me, I didn't really know anything about running a business, and so yeah. I 
a lot of it was I think just naivete going into it and thinking, oh my God, I'm so confident. Like I'm totally going to kill it, you know? Yeah. And, and then uh, having the really, uh, you know, the rude awakening. I mean, even with my digital marketing agency that what is successful and was successful, it still was like, I think a rude awakening for me for many years and like learning how to run a business and how to be strategic and you know, hiring a team and, and, and retaining clients and finding new clients. I mean, I'm sure you, everybody can relate here, no matter what kind of business you have, I think failure, uh, you know, I think we should talk about, not like on this podcast, but I think like in general, <laughs> as, a, as an entrepreneurial society, we should really talk about that more so that nobody's like surprised going into, it's like, you're probably going to fail your first few times. <laughs> Most businesses do right yeah. in the first year. And that's not unusual, nor anything to, <clears throat> um, to really, I mean, it's hard. You walk into every, every one of these ventures when with your heart in it, right? Like, wanted to be successful. You wouldn't start if you didn't feel like there was an opportunity to be successful. And you know that to to find success, you're going to have to navigate the small failures along the way and kind of string them into, if you are going to be successful, you're going to string those into a strategy and how you hire and what your culture is going to be and the type of product you want to deliver. Um, but uh, it, also, I think that there's this willingness to get back on the horse, so to speak, right? Like post a failure, what lessons are learned? Sometimes what are relearned? You might've learned them a long time ago and need, needed to learn them again. Uh, and and sometimes level setting or balancing the bank account on failure is a great way to decide to dive in with what's next, what you wanna work on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I, I think the next question I have for you is about your current organization. <laughs> you yeah. went from being a CTO um, for a few startups, it sounds like, and then you started your current company. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. And actually, I'll, I'll pull on the thread a little bit. What were the failures of the prior experiences that I really wanted to solve for in building StrikeGraph? One of the the failures I felt that had happened in a lot of prior companies that I'd helped build is that the products were too aspirational. So we were kind of building very innovative technology, AI technology, things that were really unique in the marketplace where there wasn't a lot of competition, but the sales motion, the go-to-market was really hard because we'd have to convince people they had this problem. We had to convince them that it was a big enough problem to spend money on. And we had to convince them that we had a product that could actually solve the problem. Then we then we were down to the sales process. And so I think I, I made a, a promise to myself that it wouldn't be an aspirational product, that when we built the next company, that it would be something people were already spending money on. Now that meant competition and that we would have to deal with competition, but it would mean that our go-to-market would be more easy and there would be a market that we could go after one of the other things is that um, I wanted to switch marketplaces. So I had had a deep experience in education technology, been a thought leader in the space, built some companies and great products, but it was very slow moving space. And I wanted something more attached directly to a business. As a matter of fact, I had a, an ethics thing that I would tell myself about what StrikeGraph was going to be, which was we, we are going to deliver a product to the people that pay us money directly. They are going to get the value out of the product that we provide. And by doing that, we're going to create a more ethical relationship where we build a better product and those customers get a better value. 
the problem that I landed on to go solve was uh, a security compliance problem that seemed to be plaguing all the businesses that I knew about, which is essentially that companies that buy technology solutions that require the sharing of data were getting nervous about sharing that data because a lot of breaches were coming from their vendors. So they were starting to ask companies to go through an assessment testing for their security practices against an established rubric. Uh, or And the, the rubrics that people know of oftentimes are things like SOC 2 or ISO 27001. And so we wanted to help our customers get those certifications accomplished because it unlocked revenue, increased company maturity, and it facilitated growth. And we thought it was a great problem to go and solve. Awesome. Um, yeah, a, a lot to unpack there too. Um, so I, I like how you were talking about the problem itself and having like aspirational companies versus, you know, just companies that are just solving a real problem. It, and it's very, I find that to be so like pre prevalent these days, I'd say, there are a lot of real problems, right? Like the problems that we're, you know, you and I are looking to solve. Like, for example, for us, like digital marketing, that's a real problem that a lot of companies real have, you know, and it's yeah. very easy and tangible. It is a lot of competition. Digital marketing has a ton of competition. Um, but then there are so many companies that I feel like are VC backed these days that are so aspirational that are like, oh, I'm gonna build this AI thing, blah de blah, and it's gonna be like saving the world and every puppy, you know, and it's like. <laughs> and and I, I I I know I honestly I struggle with that sometimes because it's like what I uh, maybe I'm not seeing the vision and these like VCs are seeing the vision but there's so many problems that like they're not looking to solve even though they are they're one easy to solve and two like there's a lot of money in it now right <laughs> and so I don't know I I find that kind of challenging for me <laughs> yeah it's um I think the VC back business is tough to navigate, right? Because a venture capitalist will want to invest dollars in something that can maximize the possible return. You know, we we have investors that have invested in StrikeCraft that some of their other investments have had like 400x returns. Now, you know, I don't see us doing that in the near term. I certainly wouldn't turn it down if it came our way. But they to optimize for the maximum amount of return, they're picking some of the most gregarious products and visions possible, you know, knowing that a fair bit of the companies may fail. I think what they didn't count on, and the reason we're seeing such a kind of a wild tech marketplace right now, is that even the companies that were successful, the valuations that they were building in their head weren't realistic at all. And those are now coming back down to earth in a good way, but painful at the same time. Yeah, yeah. it's always it's always the painful ascend back to earth, right? Um, so what is the problem that you are solving with StrikeGraph? Yeah, so if you're a, a buyer of technology in the marketplace, and let's say you're looking for like a HR solution to support HR management, you know you're going to share a lot of sensitive data on that platform. Well, especially if you're a fairly sizable company and a mature company, enough to have a procurement department, one of the things you're going to realize is that about 70% of data breaches are coming from third-party vendors in the marketplace. 
And so if there's one lever that you can pull on to help make your company more secure, that doesn't cost you much money. It's asking for better security practices from those vendors that you share data with. The other thing that has come into our space is certain standards that are business acceptable for security practices. Um, I mentioned SOC 2. That's designed by the AICPA. It's the old SAS 70 standard, kind of reinvented. And it's a kind of a way of auditing processes and practices. And you get an annual certification, you know, in the process. And you can use that certification if you're a vendor to go get trust with the buyer and move the buying process along more quickly. If you don't have one of these things, uh, and, and I experienced it as a chief technology officer, it could take us 18 months from a verbal commitment to buy to an actual signed contract. And that's super painful. You just, you have pipelines sitting out there that you can't close quickly enough. Um, The, uh, what we found is that there are many, many, many standards uh, that are out there and our platform helps our customers solve across multiple standards. So not only is it SOC 2, which is kind of the entry level security certification that most companies go for, but ISO 27001. And there are things that are very like vertical specific, like HIPAA, which is a standard we help our customers solve for. Um, There's standards like CMMC, which is a Department of Defense standard. If a company would like to work for the Department of Defense, they'll need to pass audits or certifications with standards like that. And so we built this really great technology. It allows our customers to design a security posture that matches their business distribute ownership throughout the organization, and automate the collection of evidence from common cloud systems. And finally, one of the things that's very unique about StrikeCraft is that we've invested heavily in automating the testing. So we've dramatically reduced the amount of time it actually takes to get through a certification. And in many ways, we compete against consulting agencies that you know charge by the hour to do the testing, where we've utilized technology to drive transparency um, and the ability to get a certification more quickly. Right. So just to make sure I understand, is this uh, the, the strike graph is just the certification itself or is it actually the uh, the, the deterrent of other of, of these breaches? Like, is it actually a technology that deters like me from going in and like pulling everyone's social security number? Yeah. One thing I tell our customers is that Strike graph as a technology won't make you more secure on its own. Okay. You know, we we don't go layer in more encryption. We're not going to monitor your uh firewall. Uh that's that's not really our role. We want you to operate your security. Our platform helps you decide what security to implement. And you know, certainly as a team, we help customers pick the right vendors that might fit their business from a size and risk perspective. Um, But we're really about the certification at the end of the day. Intriguingly, the certification is what creates value out of the security cost. You know, back a long time ago, um, when I uh, first encountered security as a computer scientist, it was kind of like, you know, if you didn't have a breach, you spent enough money. And if you did, maybe you didn't spend enough money. And that was the rubric behind, behind budgeting for security. And this way, we we kind of have a measuring stick. And I, I think in the last five years, all these security standards have given us this ability to meet a measure instead of just guessing that we were doing the right work. Right. 
Absolutely. And what are some of the recent wins you guys have had, like, or features that have been added to the platform? Yeah, the big one is um, really working heavily on uh, the uh, the automated testing itself. And so this is quite unique. You know, typically this is done by a human being clicking through a spreadsheet, looking at data piece by piece by piece. But the entire audit industry from financial audit to process audit is really, there's a lot of innovation to be done on automating that transaction analysis so that it's not as costly to have someone and boring, honestly, to look through each of the little elements. The other thing we've done that's really powerful that we added recently is um, all of our customers develop cloud systems, everything from AWS to an HR solution in very unique ways. They want to use it the way it fits their business. And so instead of us telling them exactly how to configure these solutions, we uh, built our automated integration for collecting evidence of security implementation on top of some open source tools that allow you to kind of program a robot to go find the data you need. So it's a very flexible platform and compliance in our mind is a real journey. When you're a small company, you only have a couple of things you have to do. As you get bigger and more complex, more and more comes into it. And our platform is designed to flex as those customers grow. And so we support customers anywhere from 10,000 employees to 10 uh, successfully. Right. And I was going to ask what kind of organizations do you typically work with? Is it just anybody, anybody who needs security online? Yeah. Um, any B2B business that is um, storing sensitive or private data. So we can have companies uh, that are storing very sensitive data, like healthcare data, patient information that are working with us. But we also have some companies that um, might be a, a group of analysts but the data that they analyze is sensitive and private and they want to have some good security practices in place. All of this is in service of revenue because when you go in to sell someone on your company, you can say, oh, and by the way, we get an annual audit assessment certification on our security practices. And this is a way of building trust with you. Right. Awesome. And I think one of our last questions that I like to ask uh, our uh, guests is what is your prediction for the future? And that could be specifically in this industry, or it could be self-driving cars, terraforming Mars, you know, I, I don't know, whatever Elon Musk has <laughs> for us. Uh, so I, 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 you can go as, as narrow or as broad as you, as you want. <clears throat> oh, that's dangerous, Gene. Yeah, I know. That's why it's a wild card question. Yeah. Um, I think for, you know, looking ahead, maybe I'll go from StrikeGraph and kind of out. You know, what, what I see happening for StrikeGraph is that, uh, and our customers is that we're going to see more and more standards. They're going to be iterated on. They're going to get more rigorous over time. And they're going to be more and more required. So our industry already have been growing about 15% per year, every year for the last decade. We see that only continuing and the complexity around it getting tougher and tougher and technology being an important requirement. Um, when I think about security more broadly, uh, I think that one of the one of the things I've been thinking, you know, is like three to five years ahead that we probably all need to be concerned with is I think that the quantum computing solutions are slowly getting, well, they're 
it's going faster, getting better at cracking the current encryption algorithms that we have. And that's, that is kind of scary because the only way you're going to build a better encryption algorithm is with a quantum computer to kind of combat the quantum computing that's trying to crack your encryption. And that's all our data. That is essentially how we keep data private is we encrypt it. And so that, that could be a major shift in just our digital economy and how we feel about it. I am not as bullish on the Web3 stuff. You know, for me, um, blockchain is a database. It's a shared database. It has some really good applications, but I still think it's a technology looking for a product in a way. Um, I do think that the new uh, AI solution on ChatGPT shows incremental improvement in where we're going. Um, I don't see it as these massive revolutions in AI, but I do, you know, you can say, hey, in another three to five years, they're going to go from high school grade equivalency to college and, and beyond. It's going to get even murkier to tell when you're talking to a robot versus an actual human being on the other side. And that's coming. We, I think we can see that. Yeah, I, yeah I, I totally agree um, about chat GPT and, and that's actually applicable, quite applicable in our industry in digital marketing because, you know, we do a lot of, let's say, copy, right? Like for landing pages, right. for blogs, for, and I mean, right now we're not using, we're, we're just kind of testing very mildly chat GPT, but if it, if it goes in the direction I think it's going, I think there's a lot of opportunities for um, you know, and kind of I, how I'm envisioning our our industry and our digital marketing industry to be like much different in the next few years because of all of the AI solutions. Other like you know, you can create graphics and videos and copy through ChatGPT. So I think there's going to be some turning points there. But I was in, in curious about your uh, other point about um, quantum computing. So basically, it's a double-edged sword. <laughs> The computing that the quantum computing that creates the encryption can also be the one that cracks the encryption, right? <laughs> yes, it's it's an arms race, right? It always has been in a way since since we started building very fluid information like this, and and so uh, I think we're about ready to go through an acceleration in that arms race. And I was kind of surprised. I I thought the hardware on quantum computing was still a ways out, but. There's a lot invested in it. It's going faster than than I thought it would. And so, so I then, think that's why my concern. What yeah. do you think is the solution? Would it have to be like a new way of secure? So like maybe maybe not encryption and maybe a new layer of security that quantum computing cannot crack? Yeah. You know, it's it's real speculative and I'm, I'm not that good a mathematician. Uh, but what I would say is that for a long time, you know, encoded secrets, whether written, you know, in letters all the way through today and in digital environments is really the tools that we've had. And if we're going to move away from encryption at all, I don't know that we even know what that solution might look like. It sounds very esoteric um, in a way. So I think what you'll see is that if everyone can build a 128 qubit quantum computer and those quantum computers can build, you know, million value encrypted data, like huge mathematical formulas, they're going to build them as, as easy to build as possible and as hard to crack with an equal strength computer. 
that's what we have today is that we might be using a very similarly powered computer, but it's easier to encrypt something and store it than decrypt it. And so what you'll have to use is a similarly powered computer to push the in encryption. Takes less power, can go faster, but it might take a quantum computer, hopefully years or centuries to decrypt it, because that's our current status, is that it takes centuries to probably decrypt an encrypted, normally encrypted uh, piece of content today. The problem right. is, is everything on the wire. So if you go log in somewhere and you're getting data off a server to your browser and back to the server and a quantum computer is listening and it's fast enough and can decrypt the data, nothing on the wire is hidden and it can listen to anything from originating servers and, and the other end. I think that's what you could see there is that we start to go back to more private networks for a little while until we have confidence in the encryption. We, wow. It might feel like we take two steps back before right. <laughs> Get going forward again. So you're saying that like it's less about the actual encryption itself; it's more about the transmission of the encryption that can get intercepted. That's right. Um, a lot of it has to do with how prevalent quantum computers will be. If we follow what has happened with cloud computing in general, I think that you know companies like Strikecraft are going to have access to one in the next three to four years if we wanted. And and there are right. test cases today where you can spool up a certain number of qubits. Um, that's a way to measure the CPU power and go ahead and start testing the programming language around these things. Yeah. Right. So it's like, it can be used for good or evil, right? Yeah. <laughs> it can be it's used for tool. encrypting or it can be used for decrypting. And it's yeah. the same. And ironically, it's the same platform. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, same with the AI stuff. Although I think it's easier to, you know, tear down things it's a little faster <laughs> than it is to build them up as usual. Right. Well, thank you so much. This was a really interesting conversation. Uh, I learned a lot today. Justin Beals, uh, last question is where can our audiences get in touch with you? Yeah. So um, for finding more about how StrikeGraph can help solve, you know, compliance challenges, just go to strikegraph.com. Um, we have a great website with lots of information. And during Pacific business hours, the chat is staffed with, um, some of our sales development representatives, and they can certainly help answer questions. And if you're interested in getting in touch with me, um, I'm old enough now. LinkedIn is my only social network left, uh, but it's a great place to connect and um, happy to, to connect there. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for being here.